I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Being an abolitionist requires unlearning every single thing we've been told about jails, prisons, and police since birth. To consider people as full human beings instead of monsters and psychos. To prioritize community over our selfish need for revenge. This is awkward. Ten demands. And they're about to find out. Every city, every town, burn the precinct to the ground. Badgeless federales sweep you up without a sound. Now they're crying for the Constitution, but the movement moving since the dissolution of the institution of slavery to the slave codes made to be new slaves with new chains and chain gangs to Jim Crow. They imputed crime to color, collapsed communities for profit. Stopping frisk on body cams, reforms not for stopping it, but rather rendering a system even more permanent. So the rich rely on cops and the cops do the murdering. The media reports to ensure the social scare. So everyone fears a world if cops weren't there. Statistics show cops are trained for collecting collars. And punitive systems produce recidivists and dollars. If you're poor, black, and brown, you're born to the siren sound. Tell me how much money are we paying so you'll beat us down. One time I'll say it out loud, honey To a riot cop, three is a crowd How much money are we paying right now So you'll beat us down One time I'll say it out loud, honey To a riot cop, three is a crowd How much money are we paying right now So you'll beat us down how much are we paying for the cops in cages? Patrolling and chasing, turn the block to Hades. Controlling the nation, no pops for babies. We've been selling and throwing rocks for ages. There's no education, so we clock for wages. There's no medication, so there's stock in the basement. No justification, pop with no hesitation. No reparations, so we fight the enslavement. One time I'll say it out loud, honey To a riot cop, three is a crowd How much money are we paying right now So you'll beat us down One time I'll say it out loud, honey To a riot cop, three is a crowd How much money are we paying right now So you'll beat us down the revolution's now, we still can't breathe. You think it's revolutionary defunding police? That's phase one, we will abolish the beast. Demilitarize and allocate funds to our needs. Cops don't stop crime, so we're placing peacekeepers. Training counselors, mediators and teachers. Freeing protesters, political leaders. And blasting revolutionary rap from the speakers. We getting reparations and apologies. for past and current crimes, damaged psychologies. The war on drugs is over, watch the drop in all the robberies Close the jails and prisons, equalized economy Try to try me, and we could still be enemies In this new society, without the death penalty No illegal immigrants, no victims in the pens No corporate profiting, no crime and punishment We'll tend to mental ailments, apply an intervention Ending the surveillance, denying all detention Rebuilding our communities, village by village It's time to check your white male heterosexual privilege one time I'll say it out loud, honey To a riot cop, three is a crowd How much money are we paying right now So you'll beat us down One time I'll say it out loud, honey To a riot cop, three is a crowd How much money are we paying right now So you'll beat us down 
Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and today in studio, I'm speaking with rapper and justice activist, Awkward. Welcome, Awkward. Thank you. I uh, appreciate you having me. Yeah, this should, this should be a fun conversation because you kind of encompass not only the, the good political stuff and the activism, but also music. And in fact, I wanted to ask you at the start of the show, I saw that Chuck D, who is like, I'm a huge fan, huge fan of Chuck D., I saw that he gave you a shout out. So between rap singer, activist, sociologist, gonzo, journalist, awkward, and the producer of Beyonce's number one single, 7-1, OG, Bobby Johnson, headlines as Awkward's first look back at a busy 2014 and leaves listeners wondering, as we are in the second month of 2015, what really, what really will happen with the activist rapper in 2015 and beyond? start to say you don't stop radio show off people with some great works from somebody who's really quite profound and actually happens to get his mind body and soul across in his rap lyrics this is awkward that's right og bobby johnson featuring with his producing as well name of this song is headlines as we start off the and you don't stop radio show i'm chuck d let's go What's the story behind that? Yeah, um, I'm also a huge fan. So um, he did. He's done that a few times, and it's you know the first time I definitely jumped up and down and wherever I was. You know, um, he's one of the artists that I listened to at a really young age that got me into listening to rap music, and then. Beyond that, realizing that it could be an outlet mm -hmm. for my own creative energy and rage at injustice in the world. Um, so he has a radio station now. And on a few different occasions, he's played my song as like the song of the week or something like that. And then when he does that, he does an introduction. Um, and uh, in, on a couple of those occasions, he's said some pretty cool stuff about me and you know the message in my music so that's kind of how that happened oh nice nice yeah i was like uh actually very excited when i saw that chuck d was opening for bernie sanders uh yeah. here in los angeles i don't know if you were there at the staples center that night no. but okay so i was there covering it as press and i remember being on the press platform and when chuck d came out and he started performing like the entire platform started like just yeah. shaking and we all, we all had to pick up our tripods and lift up the cameras because everybody's camera was like. <laughs> nice. It was awesome. But he, yep, made some, yep. um, he made some really good points about where we were as far as, as not having justice, the racism still exists, existing within the police departments, you know, and, and a lot of the things that he does talk about. And what made this I, so historic, in my opinion, was that I can't imagine any political or any presidential candidate ever having Chuck D on a stage and and calling this stuff out so blatantly. It, it was an unusual thing to see. Bernie, right? Bernie. They say, <laughs> they say, uh, yo, man, he up there in age, man. He an OG, he old. As far as senators go. Hey, I'm 59. Yo, he an old ass rapper, yo. Those are the two fields that we in. You know what? On the real, ain't about us. It's about y'all. I done seen a lot, been 116 countries, people. I know from going around the world, 
I know the whole world looking at us. They are looking at a situation, and it's time for people to get off of their asses. I'm going to dedicate this night to my father, my late great father, Lorenzo Douglas, where the D comes from right now, who passed away in 2016. Now, I'm going to tell you what, how, and what resonated to me that makes sense. Because it's about truth and connecting yourself to a fucking agenda you can feel instead of sitting on the couch doing not a goddamn thing. Let me tell y'all what's real. I don't give a fuck who you are, green, whatever. Healthcare is real. My father passed away 2016 at the age of 77. We dealt with healthcare and it was a struggle in this damn country. Number two, I have recently had a granddaughter. Y'all got kids out there, put your hands in the air. Child care is real, y'all. That's very real. Climate control. I travel around the world and it's a hot box increasing and that affects me. So those three things resonated to me very clearly, people. It's about the idea. And when it comes down to voting, voting is important as washing your ass in the morning. Now listen, you could talk about, oh, you know, you ain't got to wash. You ain't got to wash. You got the right to run around funky. You just don't have the right to run around funky and tell somebody that it stink out here. So you got to get your ass up and vote for something. Even if it don't mean come up and vote for who presents something to you, but you should have the common sense to connect on the idea. Common sense. That's logic, rationale, deductive reasoning. That's something a monkey and an animal ain't got. You're a human being. Use your mind. Don't be no robot. Give me 45 seconds, because listen, I don't do this shit much, but listen to me. It's time to grow up and somebody got to put the big-ass pants on. You wake up, Funky, that means your ass is grown. Get out and do some shit. God damn. And people talk about, yeah, I don't agree with the policy. All of a sudden, motherfuckers want to get what they call recently woke. Listen to somebody, be grown, make yourself important in your locale. That's a simple thing to do. Be the most important motherfucker in your house. God damn. God damn. Let me get this last point out before I move this show on, because I know when I started out as an MC, I was a talking motherfucker. You know, it's just like this dude told me one time, man. He said, yo, man, and this dude was kind of trifling. We from the hood, this dude was trifling. He said, yeah, man, I had to bounce from church. So you came from church. I, I kind of looked at dude like, <laughs> you came from church, dude? <laughs> he said, yeah, Chuck, you know how I am, man. But it's like catfish, dog. You know, I eat what's edible, and I toss the bones away. That's the same way I listen to preachers and shit. Made sense. That's the same way you get woke when you vote, and you listen out there because it's about you. It's about you.
Get your ass up. Bring the noise. Come on, y'all. Yo, that's on, y'all. DJ Lord, Chuck D, my name hey. is Jaheen. Yo, it's time to bring the noise bass. How long can you go? That's wrong. We're on the front of the once again. Back is the incredible. Rhyme animal, the incredible. Public enemy number one. Five votes and freeze. And I got them. Can't tell that I really never had a gun. What's the wax of the Terminator X1? Now they got me in the cell. Come on, look at me. Sell. Come on, brother, like me. Said, well. And I think it speaks uh, highly of per, of uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, integrity, right? That he was willing to do that. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the closest thing we ever had was the movie Bullworth, which was a joke. Um, yeah. It it would have been completely um, unheard of to connect your political campaign and and life with with rap music yeah. that for as long as it's existed has been blamed for the violence in communities that have been forcefully impoverished and criminalized right. um and you know it, it absolutely says a lot about bernie um and it was kind of one of those things that added to my disappointment in you know obviously him not winning um, you know, and we can certainly blame a really intensive effort by the Democratic Party to make sure he didn't win. Um, but also the misconception among so many uh, black people in, um, in particular, but all people of color that that he didn't stand for for racial justice, that he didn't understand the needs of black people. Um, I'm not going to say that Bernie does you know, even as much as I do, he certainly doesn't right. as much as black leaders do. Right. But if you're comparing him to the people he was, um, you know, in a race against, yeah. to me, it was a no brainer. He like Cornel West or like uh, Malcolm X or Martin Luther King understands the interconnectedness of race and class yeah. um, and the working people's and poor people's measures that he's taken throughout his career directly benefit um, black people and people of color. And Joe Biden was a segregationist yeah. when Bernie was out protesting with black people. And Biden wrote the crime bill that has put so many black people in prison. So, yeah, I mean, Chuck was on the right side. Killer Mike was on the right side. And I wish more of all of us were. Indeed. I mean, can you imagine Biden having fuck the police as an opening? <laughs> Certainly not. He would have fuck Social Security. Exactly. Um, exactly. Fuck Tara Reid. Uh, right. I know. But it, so anyway, it was a remarkable moment, I thought, historically. And I was I thought it was great. So now right. what drew you to rap music? I mean, it seems to me that as someone that came of age in, uh, you know, I went to high school in the 80s and was in college in the 90s. And I started listening to rap early on when it first came out, which is different for kids that are growing up now. But it seems to me that rap music really is intrinsically um, grounded in justice movements. So it seems yeah. like a, a no-brainer that you would be attracted to rap music. But what are some of the things that that drew you to that, that motivated you to get involved? Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, to me, um, hip-hop has always been um, the music of and oppressed people yeah. and the music um, that, you know, is, is created to bring some levity to really tough lives, as well as to form the soundtrack to um, anti-racist and um, 
you know, revolutionary movements. Right. Um, so yeah, from, from those perspectives, it does make sense. But at the same time, um, you know, you look at me and you just see a white guy and you might wonder, you know, what, how I became so connected to this type of music or to what is predominantly a black culture. Um, and, you know, the, the truth is, is that it really stemmed from my own upbringing in a rich, white, conservative, Christian town. Oh, really? Um, okay. My whole family uh, is from New York City, those who escaped the Nazis. Um, and I, and then my parents moved me to this place in Connecticut, and we were working class, um, leftist, and Jewish. And I experienced immense amounts of anti-Semitism. And it, which, which initially I, I responded to with anger and violence. Yeah. And I then, you know, not long after realizing what was happening, like realizing what was happening to myself, I saw that the very few people of color, um, the few handicapped people, the LGBTQ people um, were all discriminated against far worse. My mom being an activist against uh, the Vietnam War, against, um, you know, the nu nuclear energy, you know, for women's rights, for civil rights. Um, she helped me make the connection between interpersonal bigotry and hatred to systemic racism and the larger issues that that trickle down to the way people interact with each other. Um, and so when my babysitter, you know, first played rap music to me, it was a lot like the Motown and the revolutionary right. hippie stuff my parents listened to, but it was there was something innate about the sound of the music, yeah. and and then what they were talking about um, with the education I was getting at home that kind of put it all together. And I learned that instead of going around trying to punch every kid with a Confederate flag in their yeah. in the face, that I could, you know, become an activist and a political rapper instead. Although, you know, there's something to punchy Nazis, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, but you know, the truth is that um, we all have our place, right? Yeah, like my do. my cousins um, co-founded Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice. They're a national organization known okay. as the Sharps. And that's what they did for many years. That's all they did. They beat up Nazis. They went looking for them and they fought them. And, you know, uh, that's, I kind of was following in their footsteps, had enough run-ins with the law. And despite, um, a straight A, um, despite having straight A's in high school, almost didn't graduate. Oh, um, I was in, I was in trouble so much. So oh, right. I decided to make my mom proud and, and take a less violent, um, more strategic approach. Right. Understood. So, you know, there's a natural, um, solidarity that exists i think between jewish folks and black folks because let's be honest the the nazis the neo-nazis the right-wing groups that um hate black folks also hate jewish folks and in some instances there's even crossover from being outside of the right-wing population to anti-semitism i see a lot of anti-semitism anti-semitism coming from people in the left world as well i think most of the times that it's really misunderstood so I wanted to ask you, um, I also have a Jewish family that survived World War II. So I sort of, I feel what you're saying here. I want to ask you about the fact that 
There are so many people that I would identify or point out as being anti-Semitic that think they are not because they support the state of Israel. And I think there's a really ridiculous conflation that happens where people say, well, Jewish and Israeli are the same, and they're absolutely not the same. You know, yes. there's, there's no group that's monolithic in its beliefs. And within the state of Israel, there's, there's right and there's left. And right now there's a lot more right than there is left. And then there's even more right wing. I mean, the home party is even more to the right than Likud is. So what are your thoughts in this area? And how do you think, um, what do you think is a really good way to address that when you see it happening? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty complex because you yeah. have, you know, you have like the the alt right and and even less right than that, um, who hate Jews for the same reasons we've been hated for thousands of years. They, you know, that we're you know, that we um, have some secret cabal that is controlling the whole world right. or, you know, it, we have devil horns. Um, yeah, the Satan stuff is really offensive. I mean, it's insane, you yeah. know, but it dates back thousands of years. Right. Um, you know, these are the people chanting blood and soil um, who want to send us back to Israel because for the same reason they want to send all black people to Africa. Right. Um, you know, then you have people who conflate Jews with Israel, which in and of itself is anti-Semitic. I agree. Um, and, you know, and that's why I didn't, a lot of people to me wrongfully were celebrating when Trump did this thing, you know, before he left that said, like, Jews have the right to return to Israel. Um, I took that for what it to me what it really was. He's he's a white supremacist. And, you know, I've the whole time he was in office, I felt we were one step away. And I don't feel that much better today, let's be honest, but one step away from the next Holocaust. And you know, what is happening to immigrants with ICE and DHS and the detention centers and forced sterilizations is pretty close to concentration camps. Right. Um, so for him to like open up this door for all American Jews to be considered somehow Israeli to me was like opening the door to exporting us um, right. or deporting <laughs> us. And, um, you know, so, you know, and then you have um, people on the left who, um, you know, are maybe seen as anti-Semitic by Jews because they have a problem with Israel. Right. And, and that's not truly. Yeah, that's let's talk about that. You're making a really valid point here. Criticism of the, of the state of Israel isn't necessarily anti-Semitic. They're a state like any state. And oftentimes they are deserving of criticism. Yes. And if not now, um, you know, and um, uh, never again action. These are groups run by Jews, right. um, and Jewish I am a Voice Jew for Peace. Who, what's that? Jewish Voice for Peace. I would yeah, say. Yeah, right. That's yeah. another one. Um, and I um, am a Jew who um, actually has one of my four grandparents was born in in Israel um, or what was then Palestine, but right. in, in Tel Aviv. And I believe that there, in an ideal world, there would be an equal. First of all, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have nation states and arbitrary boundaries at all. And then we wouldn't have an immigration problem because it wouldn't be we own this plot of land that we stole from indigenous people, but not this plot. But in any case, assuming nation states, it would be really the most just if there was a free and safe and healthy um, Palestine and same for Israel, or if they could coexist together and the names and, and the religions and who owns what, like, really shouldn't matter. 
Um, I'm 100% proud of being Jewish, 100% proud of being a tough Jew because of how we were led to slaughter during the Holocaust and many times before that. But I'm 100% against what Israel is doing to Palestinians today. And there are Jews who have a problem with me because I'll say that. To me, I hear you, can't, you. you can't really be a leftist and be okay with what Israel is doing. Yeah. Um, you know, and and I think, you know, just being against it, like I said, and you said, is is not inherently anti-Semitic. Um, but you can go too far. Like it's it, there's a thin line between like, you know, it, you, you have to speak about Israel and not about Jews. That's there right. are Jews in Israel who are against what Israel is doing. Absolutely. So you can't even speak about Israeli Jews. It's right. the people in charge who are doing this. And the people that vote them into office. Um, yeah. It's so, it's gotten, it's so far gone. It just keeps getting worse and worse. I know, uh, I think back on, uh, there's a Israeli philosopher named Yeshaya Leibowitz, who um, gets, gets a lot of slack now all these years later, but he sort of predicted this happening, you know, 30 years ago. He was saying that, that the forced um, military service, not giving Palestinians equal rights, um, et cetera, et cetera. And he even used the term Judeo-Nazi, which is kind of a shocking thing to hear someone say. Yeah. Uh, but his point was that eventually the society would become so ingrained in this sort of military-based na nationalism that it would become very sick. And it's yeah. interesting to watch this progression that's happened. And I think, um, you know, like I have my Israeli friends, most of them have left the country and they don't want to live there anymore because they're leftists and they don't feel comfortable. But then the unfortunate yeah. reality to that is that you're you're left with a lot of right wingers <laughs> and like True. nobody like counterbalancing that. So I don't know what happens next, yeah. but it is not a healthy situation. And it's no. really upsetting when I hear Americans, you know, calling fellow Jewish folks capo or which is just offensive as hell to me. And that happens with regularity. And what's the crime? Well, the crime is saying that maybe Israel needs to be checked and maybe it is an apartheid state where they're not offering equal rights to everybody. And maybe it's time to grow up and be an actual democracy instead of being being so worried about being an ethno state. Right. I don't know. I don't know what the answer yeah. is, but. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think giving aid to Israel and the way that they're so inextricably tied and in how they vote in for every UN resolution together, yeah. either pro or against, I mean, it, it isn't appropriate. Um, but Israel is one of Israel slash Palestine is one of many countries in which we involve ourselves as the United States and take one side over the other. And we typically support the wrong side. We, yeah. we support, you know, we support tyranny, authoritarianism and, um, you know, do anything we can to, to quell uprisings by the poor, which is the same thing we do domestically. You know, um, I, I think like one po important po uh, point I just want to make is that, like, I look at the people who vote for the people who are doing this in Israel as far less problematic than the people doing it themselves. Right, um, right. OK. You know, for a couple reasons. One, um, you know, Jews are less than one percent <clears throat> of the world's population. And so really? we are is that all the case? It's like 0. 0.005. Like it's an absurdly small percentage. Okay. And and as a res and like we are all born with the belief that Israel 
is the only thing protecting us from another Holocaust. Well, yeah, you're raised, you're told that from the time you're small. And then all of a sudden you get to a certain age and you kind of go, wait a second. <laughs> well, you is say, really wait a second, if you're, if you're a real humanitarian, if you're a real... Right. If you care about people, justice, because you say, I don't like what Israel is doing. How can Israel be doing to others what has been done to us? That's right. That is so hypocritical. Yeah, that's Um, how it feels to me, at least. But it's but, you know, in that way, Israel isn't alone, too. You know, Kwame Nkrumah wrote about this, like, you know, the, the people who who take over from, you know, their tyrannical rulers tend to, to do the same thing once they're in power. It's like the nature of power itself is is problematic, um, you know, but the, so I, I, I keep that in mind when I think about the people voting for whoever they're voting for in Israel. It's just not the same as voting it's, for a Nazi in the U.S. No, no, it's but not. On the other, but like, and in addition, as an abolitionist, I don't believe any individual person is beyond reproach or beyond transformation. And so I look at those who voted for Donald Trump the same way I look at those who vote for Netanyahu or something in, in Israel and well, say I'm that- Often the same group, let's be honest. Right. And they're being fed for generations, yeah. you know, and then their whole individual lives- an insane amount of disinformation and propaganda, and they're led to believe that voting this way is in their best interest when it's not. So, you know, there's no reason they can't be healed, reformed, re-educated. Right. Um, and it's not like a conversion therapy that's forcing them to be something they're not. It's forcing them to unlearn lies that have been told to them, you know, and it's up to us on the left to, instead of just trying to, in, you know, murder or incarcerate or right. something, all of these people trying to help them understand that, like, you know, there is more we have in common with each other than any of us have in common with the corporations or the rich politicians um, or the people making laws that hurt all of us. That is indeed true. Uh, so I want to ask you, what do you think about this tension? I think there's a tension that exists that is also quite dangerous in a way. When I see folks like Ben Shapiro or some of the other folks that identify as being on the right and, and they're friends with people in the alt-right, how is it that any Jewish individual can be friends with somebody that literally uplifts neo-Nazis? Um, you know, Richard Spencer and Yair Netanyahu, which is um, Bibi's son, you know, they had this whole correspondence on Facebook where they were talking about ethno states being okay and Pepe the Frog was good. I think this is incredibly dangerous. You know, have have any of these folks stopped to consider that maybe the reason Richard Spencer is okay with Israel is because he believes in ethno states and he sees Israel as an ethno state. So his thing is, his hot take is, I want a white ethno state. So you guys go, please go have your own ethno state. Get out of here. Let me have my white ethno state. This, but then he's going to turn around and would condone a genocide. I, I mean, how do they not see how dangerous this is? They do. And this is these are the same people who um, to Jews like myself who um, are in favor of, um, you know, abolishing ICE and ending uh, immigration, you know, immigrant deportations. Um, they say to us, open Israel's borders. That is um, that is like this. Yeah, okay. um, I see what you're saying. And there's there's a term for this where they they all kind of meet together in some place 
on the internet and decide which insane things they're all going to say. Right. Um, I think that would be 8chan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's exactly right. Like, that's where these things are being, like, conceived of. And, and that, you know, so these people aren't, like, I think what they're thinking is, you know, they would rather have um, a white, in their minds, all Jews are white also, which isn't true. Um, yeah, that's but, definitely not true. That's really strange, actually. I mean... Well, the, they, they certainly think, and, and rightfully so, that the, the majority of Muslims are brown or black. Okay. And they, they, they believe that all Muslims are terrorists. Right, so this is a, a combined hatred for Muslims more than Jews, I would say, maybe? Well, that's what I'm saying, is yeah. that, like... They okay. hate Jews too, yeah. but they, you know, but like, since it's not happening here in the U.S., they're okay with Jews having an ethnostate if it means fewer Muslims in the Middle East to like right. create issues for collecting oil, um, you know, I, and yeah. for the security, you know, Israel's like the security hub for the Middle East where right. all the terrorists are trained. So, um, you know, I think that's where this is, where this is coming from, but I, I cannot fathom um, being a Jew and, um, you know, I, I mean, on that note, there's a lot of people on the left who during the Capitol, um, whatever you want to call it, when the cops let right-wing extremists waltz into the Capitol. I'm, I'm calling it an insurrection. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it, it was an insurrection in, in, in their purpose, um, yes. in, or attempted coup or attempted murders and in, in their purpose, but they didn't riot. They didn't, uh, you know, have it have any difficulty walking in and they got their hands held on the way out. So I don't know what to call it, but because the cops were either helping them um, in their official positions as capital. They were police. up to a certain point and then they stopped when I think they realized how dangerous it was. There was a point where that flip switched. Um, unfortunately, we were we were I don't know if you saw that we were there live streaming. Our, yeah. our live stream has now been deleted by YouTube because. Oh, I didn't know that. They don't like the truth, right? I mean, I, I, yeah, it's wild. I, it's that's why they're, you know, uh, putting fifty warnings on my ten demands video. They don't want the truth. They don't want people to have access to the truth. It's very sad. Um, but then, the, you know, there were so many cops who were active. You know, actually part of it who Absolutely came from there the were. country. Yeah. Um, but so there were people during this time cheering them on because right. it was anti-government or, right. you know, anti-oligarchy or however you want to word it. And they were and they then spent, you know, the next however many weeks dying on this hill that we should um, collabore with Nazis, that we should. <laughs> and and, you know, which is my insane to me. Me too. But my argument to me and, you know, and they. They twisted the history about the Black Panther Party, yeah. you know, to say that the Rainbow Coalition was with Nazis. Which um, is not true. Also not true. So, you know, but what I say to that is is that, um, and, and the same thing to any of these Jews who are, you know, sending love letters to Nazis that you were mentioning, yeah. um, you can certainly again, like back to what I was saying about believing anyone can transform, you, you can certainly believe in the possibility of joining forces with someone who at one point considered themselves a Nazi or a proud boy or a boogaloo boy. But as long as they're 
calling themselves any of these things, as long as they're espousing, you know, murder of, of people who don't look like them or saying that, you know, it's a white man's society that is being destroyed by Jews and people of color, they're not your allies. Agreed. If, you know, and, and until they are, until I can trust them, it's hard enough to trust people who've been on the left forever. Right. Why we think we can invite to our strategy meetings brand new Nazis, I, I don't know. Like they would need to do a lot of convincing and a lot of change rehabilitation before I would right. feel safe coordinating anything with them. But I it wouldn't feel safe. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a ridiculous argument. And I, I, it's it's strange to me that anybody on the left would make it too because the obvious problem is that if they have hate in their heart for somebody that you consider to be an ally, when does that switch flip? When do they, when do you stop having a common enemy, i.e. the oligarchy? And when does the person on your right, who is your ally also now become your enemy because the oligarchy is not the focus anymore. It's the brown folks, the Jewish folks, the black folks. I don't understand how that's not obvious to folks. Like, yeah. And, and the truth is, is that, um, you know, in activist circles that, you know, are much kind of more fleshed out and, and have been around for a long time, we run into issues endlessly with white men like myself talking over black women um, and with all other kinds of um, issues with typically white men, straight men. Um, but it's really hard to be successful in in coming up with good strategic plans where every voice is heard and predominantly silenced voices are, are um, amplified and, and are allowed to take leadership. And right. um, so like, again, like how are we thinking that would be any better if we brought Nazis into an already complicated loop? Yeah. <laughs> like there's there's no association with Nazis, period, end of story. I have a hard line on that. I don't understand why anybody would think otherwise. Uh, look, if a Nazi wants to fight for Medicare for all, they can go do so in their own space, not in mine. Right. It's not right. happening. You know, and that has long been my view. It's long been, you know, it was my original fight, right? As like before understanding anything as a young kid fighting anti-Semites, like yeah. that was it. That's but right. as I've grown, as I've as I've aged and learned and experienced and, you know, developed this abolitionist framework, I'm forced to question how I always thought. I'm forced right. to I'm forced to, you know, be more sophisticated in, in my thinking about all people and why people are the way they are. And instead of and understanding that all perpetrators pretty much have been victims themselves. Right. So why is this person a Nazi? It's not. It's probably not because they were born to be this way. They were yeah. taught this. So exactly. It's, you know, that's that's the difference is just accepting that fact and seeing what we can do about it. Right. Right. No, I think you're right. Um, you know, and I, we interviewed an ex-Nazi named Frank Mink. You know, and he had some interesting insight into how how guys become Nazis, right? And most of the time is based on you're right being in that environment of hate income inequality, lack of education. There's a host of things right. that bring people to these these places. And some of them are redeemable. I don't know how many are. I, you know, I'm sure it's a decent amount of them, but 
but it's a very dangerous space to ask somebody that's that's a brown, black, or Jewish individual to go into that space and feel comfortable. That's just no. that just, is abs- yes. I that's I, not that's, the work of those folks. That's the works of that is the work that yeah. an ex Nazi needs to be doing to like change the people that he understands better than anybody else, right? I am really glad you said that. It is at like Yes, absolutely. It is not the responsibility of the people who are already um, being oppressed and right. and the you know the victims of violence by these people. It is certainly not their job. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, you know, but I it, sort it of is, feel like that's what some of these individuals are are sort of advocating, whether they realize it or not, when they say things like, "We should be." partnering with these alt-right guys on Medicare for all or whatever else. I don't think they've really thought that through. That's true. They didn't think through it. It's not like they thought, um, I like they, they, they were, they didn't think at all. It's a privileged, (laughs) it's an absolutely privileged stance in order to make this privileged argument, you would have to be a white straight person, you know, and, um, because otherwise you are afraid of these people you are their target. So of course you wouldn't be proposing that. And um, to to, to kind of just throw everyone who is a target into that and say like, if you're not open to it, like there's something wrong with you, that's that's pretty problematic. It's insanely problematic. And I, I think that that's an accurate description of what I've seen happen with a few individuals and it's unfortunate. I just, it blows my mind really. Um, Let's talk about 10 Demands for Justice for a second. You're one of the founders of this organization. How did that come to be? How did you meet up with these folks and create the organization? What's the whole story behind that? Yeah, um, it's really my main focus um, right now and has been um, since last April. Um, But the underlying um, fight for um, the end of um, over-policing, the end of mass incarceration has essentially been my focus for the last 20 years. Um, I've done everything from um, volunteer time in maximum security prisons, uh, meeting with incarcerated people, um, to um, helping educate individuals at alternative to incarceration centers, uh, to lobbying New York State Congress, for the repeal of the Rockefeller drug laws, um, leading direct actions in Philadelphia to free Mumia. I mean, just a lot, like really any angle I could take, I've tried to take part in. Um, and this is just the culmination, I would say, of that. It was the right time and it was inspired by um, a lot of people coming to some the realization that I had a very long time ago and that many black feminists had before I did. And, um, you know, black feminists have led the movement for abolition, um, you know, for longer than um, I've been um, been in this. Um, but it's something that I have believed in strongly for a very long time. And um, after George Floyd was murdered, yeah. um, you know, I had a lot of people like for the first time in many people's lives, I think, you know, had they, you know, if they, they didn't really, 
let's put it this way. After the murder of George Floyd, we had the longest period of sustained protest in the history of this country. That includes the civil rights era. It includes the Vietnam um, era. And so for the first time ever, we were like really at this precipice of like making substantive change for the first time in this arena since the civil rights era. Um, and I, I can't really explain why it took this particular murder by police. Um, cops kill three people a day yeah. and are responsible for a third of all stranger murders in this country um, while solving only 2% of all major crimes and, and not stopping crime. So, right. um, you know, I know there were, and I was involved in um, protests before that when um, Eric Garner was murdered in New York. There were protests in Ferguson when Mike Brown was murdered. And that led to the rise of Cori Bush, who's now a congressperson. And, um, but for whatever reason, the whole country seemed to wake up for the first time. And people who have never thought about it, cared about it, said it before, were saying Black Lives Matter. And I had a lot of people who've known me for years text me, call me, say, you know, I'm seeing what you've been saying everywhere. You were right. Like right. black lives do matter. Like I'm hearing it. You've been saying this forever. And I'm like, shouldn't, I shouldn't have to say it. It's pretty obvious, <laughs> right? but like, you know, I'm pat on my back. You know, you recognize that I said it before everyone else or whatever. Um, but I was really excited that this, that there was finally momentum. Um, and a lot of activists that I had only really known from Twitter, um, who I hadn't worked with um, in the outside world, started talking um, through private messages about the need to um, put together a comprehensive list of demands that right. would kind of consolidate the disparate demands that we were seeing come out of different other collectives. And um, so we started organically just having conversations that obviously moved away from Twitter and like into, you know, long calls and, and all kinds of things. And so together we put together these 10 demands and it was really, um, you know, some of the people that started with us didn't stay um, because it, it was really important to me that this be an abolitionist framework, right. um, that reforms only strengthen the system. Um, and you know, that without actually working toward, um, creating a new society where cops and cages, um, are not necessary and, you know, where care is provided instead. Um, you know, if we weren't going to do that, then it was really, um, not a, it would really not be effective. It would yeah. only kind of, um, you know, it would, it would go out there and it would just, you know, cops would still kill people and, and, you know, people who are labeled criminals would continue to be incarcerated based on their class and their color. Um, and, you know, so we developed the road to abolition. It's, it's in, it starts with defunding and it, right. it makes clear that you can't just defund the police, you have to reallocate those resources to um, to programs like um, jobs training, education, um, substance abuse and mental health treatment, 
um, replacing patrols with wellness checks, um, taking the cops out of schools and surveillance out of schools. And um, there's a ton of things that can start right now, um, ending cash bail, ending solitary confinement, um, you know, ending qualified immunity. There's no right. reason that these things can't happen today as we start to defund the police. But if, you know, one of the most common misconceptions is that if you're an abolitionist, you believe that every cop should be fired tomorrow, every police station should be shut down, every prison and jail should be opened, and there's and then it's anarchy. Right, um, right. You know, abolition is about presence, not absence. It's about the presence of life-affirming institutions, but we are realistic. We understand that these institutions don't exist yet. Right. We've spent all of our money and all of our focus on on police and prisons. So as we're defunding down to zero, 10 Demands has this list of laws that should be passed, laws that should be changed, and things that should be built, community oversight, you know, just, an, you know, a, a like a, a lot of different things that yeah. should, that need to happen in order to create this society where we can have, you know, reparative transformative justice and mediation and community service and rehabilitation um, in the in the cases where crimes still do occur, despite their we ac are actually being healthier and safer. Um, and, yeah. you know, so what we've been doing is trying to educate people about dispelling the myths about abolition um, and trying to get these demands um, to elected officials. We've seen small successes and I don't mean we as in 10 demands did this. We've seen small successes as an abolitionist community in Seattle, um, in Austin, with small percentages of police budgets um, being, uh, you know, reduced. Mm. We're now at this, and, and in Austin, seeing that money actually go to homeless um, yeah. services. Yeah. So we need to see more and more of those funds being reallocated, and we need to see more and more of our elected officials in more and more cities and towns um, take ownership of this and understand that this is the road to justice. And if they don't get behind it now, as scary as the slogans may sound, they're going to be left out. We're not going to vote for them again. Right. So let's let's talk about what exactly abolish and defund mean. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion about that. So. If we get rid of, let's say, for example, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, we've discovered that they're incredibly corrupt. There's like many gangs inside the Sheriff's Department that are dealing drugs, you know, doing all kinds of criminal activity. They're obviously not policing properly. So we want to get rid of that. What is it that we replace them with? What is your um, ideas for that? Yeah, I mean, again, like one of the one of the ways to expedite abolition is to dismantle any police department. I mean, is to fire any officer that is found guilty of using excessive force or being um, or breaking the law and then dismantling any police department that is complicit in allowing this behavior or, you know, even worse, like facilitating it, covering it up. And right. this happens all over the country. Yeah. Um, so yes, it is, it is a more complicated question than the larger scale, um, longer term solution when we still live in this America, but yeah. we do have certain departments that no longer exist. 
um, what we would what we would need to do is start to you know again billions of dollars go into that department. So those billions of dollars need to go to training um, highly educated um, specialists who um, you know who actually who don't carry weapons who are not military trained are not given military grade equipment mm -hmm. who are actually who actually excel at de-escalating situations okay we need to we need to have social workers who are doing wellness checks instead of patrols so going to make sure that communities are safe that individuals who are um who are in who are in need are getting mental health and substance abuse right. treatment um, so a lot of it is preventative. When you, right. when a crime does occur, there's no reason that you need to call someone who has, who is likely a white supremacist, who has no proper training, who is empowered to kill with impunity, and who has military grade weaponry, because their job, like what they, I mean, a perfect example is what happens to women who um, criminalize survivors, typically right, women right. who um defend themselves against their attackers they're the ones who get arrested and go to prison um when they're just defending themselves cops feel this need to arrest someone um and typically when we see it time and time again that if they happen to end up in an in a physical location where a crime is still being where a crime is still happening or more likely there's a disagreement or an altercation that isn't inherently criminal, the cops make it a thousand times worse. It is, right. they are the violent ones. I mean, more than 40% of them admit to beating their their uh, their partners. I would say- Yeah, that there's a lot of domestic violence uh, that's a common problem in law enforcement. So let me ask you this. So the idea is, is like, we get rid of the occupying force kind of beat cop thing we have going now. Maybe what we have instead is the things that have all been dogpiled into the police department, social services. I mean, we're sending cops out with sanitation workers now to, to deal with the homeless population. There's all kinds of areas where a, a, a gun is not required for the job to be done. And in fact, makes the, the, uh, the job a little bit more dangerous for all parties involved. But there is a need for sort of a, a detective, for lack of a better work, a detective department maybe that that looks into murders or serial killers, rape, you know, things of this right. nature and tries to do something well, about that. Those are two different things though. And I think a lot of folks don't understand that. 100%, yes. There's the occupying force that is patrolling, um, racially profiling, stopping and frisking mm -hmm. um, and ruining lives. Um, this, this detective group is much smaller and what they do yeah, is much, much smaller. smaller. Um, you know, again, the one third of all stranger murders are committed by cops. Most rapes that occur are the rape kits are still sitting in the police department warehouses. Um, cops solve these detectives solve 2% of all major crimes. So the first thing we have to do is just acknowledge that the system is working exactly as it was intended to maintain slavery and to other and remove certain segments of, of our um, society and earn a profit off of them. And for everyone else, those who aren't earning the living off of this, it isn't working. The, the, you know, imagine doing your job well 2% of the time. 
The only other thing right. I can think of where batting 200, um, you know, is even close to making it is baseball, which is considered the hardest thing you can possibly do <laughs> is hitting a baseball. Really? If, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I did my job correctly, 2% of the time, I would, I'd be with, I'd be houseless because right. I, no one would hire me. That's so, right. um, you know, so we have to just acknowledge that, you know, and then, and then there's the fact that the majority of people who are arrested, um, tried and incarcerated, those who are in prison are not there for violent offenses. The majority are there who are there are nonviolent. Yeah. Seven out of 10 people in jail haven't even been convicted of a crime. That's, um, you know, that's right. Let's talk about that for a second. That's, that is one of the worst aspects of our criminal justice system. We have completely criminalized poverty in the country. If you don't have money to post bail, you sit in prison. That is yep. outrageous. Yep, it's, it really is. And it's, you know, it's always outrageous. But then you add to the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and jails are the hottest hotspot. Right. Um, so someone who was arrested because someone else lied about them, so never even did anything, it might get locked up for years before being ever tried to die of COVID. Um, it's a death sentence. Yeah. Um, and even if they have convict, uh, committed a crime, again, you know, as you know, Angela Davis has said many times, We've all probably committed one crime or another, which oh, separates yeah, the criminalized community, those labeled criminal from the rest of us who've also committed crimes is predominantly race and then class. So, you know, I mean, it that that's why things like ending cash bail are things we can do right now and are part of the 10 demands, um, you know, and and that's, you know, and that's why, like, you can't just close a police station like the sheriffs in LA. You have to create alternatives that will actually work to keep us safer. Right. Um, you know, I'm not like, you know, the, the amount of the percentage of murders that are committed by serial killers is also less than 1%. We are, we are fed so much propaganda. You know, the, yeah. the, the news is just filled with things to create moral panics. And so we're all terrified. And then the politicians use this, um, you know, it's all collusion. They, they use this uh, to talk tough on crime. And, you know, it's, it's all based on fabrication. Right, right. Um, you know, and then the reason 10 demands and other abolitionist efforts are so important is because, like I said, reforms don't actually fix the problem. Joe Biden's um, signing of a deal to end private prisons is a perfect example. He was touted yeah. on both sides of That's the aisle right. for this. But here, here's the thing. Only 8% of prisons are private. Yeah. So you're not actually affecting 92% of those incarcerated or 92% of, in, you know, um, where, warehouses of people. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, as, as someone just told me the other day who was incarcerated for a number of years. Also, his bill, are, let me ask you something. His bill is just pertaining to federal prisons, not state, right? Yes, there's, so there, there's, I mean, there's that, a lot of private prisons that are still being run by the state and also ICE. There's that too. Um, yes. So it's only federal. It's only private. And uh, the one so, and two things really stand out to me about this. One is that um, what, what a person who was incarcerated for a while just told me like yesterday or the day before is that in his experience, everyone he knew in state prison 
was trying desperately to get into a private prison to be transferred because even though they're still horrible prisons, there's the conditions are still egregious. They're still it's they're still incredibly unsafe. They're better than the state and federal prisons. They're better than the ones run by the government. And then there's the fact that by doing this, you're just adding to this litany of laws that are written in that just strengthen the assumption that prisons are the answer. Because mm -hmm. even if he was addressing all private prisons, state and federal and ICE facilities and everything else, it doesn't actually decarcerate. Right, Every single right. person who's in these places is just going to be going to one that is not private. It doesn't affect anyone who is currently incarcerated. In fact, if, if it's true that private prisons are better, it's only making they're, it worse. Well, they're, no, they are definitely not better. And I think you can make a clear case that they absolutely are worse. Uh, now we've got a situation where people are profiteering off of having more prisoners in prison, longer sentences. So that's definitely the case. But I do think it's it's a very compelling argument you're making here that it's, it's such a small portion of what's being done now that it's not going to really do enough to change the fabric of where we are as a country. I mean, that is certainly one of the points and and probably to non-abolitionists, the most important one, that it's not enough. But to me, the bigger point is not that it's not enough. It's that it is assuming that prisons are the answer, that all of these people who are yeah. in there belong there. Right. Which is not and, true. Right. And so every time you pass another law that's a reform that I uses see. the same, you know, the same materials and, you know, with the same assumptions, it, it's just making it harder and harder to undo all of this stuff. Mm, I see. No, I, that, okay, totally get your point. So what about recidivism rates? I mean, what are we not doing after we release people from prison to help them just have a normal life again? I think it's really tough yeah. on these folks because you know, the employment laws are such, you know, if you've got a felony record, it's really hard to find a job. You can't pay rent. Like there's so many problems with that. So that uh, area too. Are you guys working in that area? Yeah. I mean, you know, it starts in the prison. Um, you know, it prisons were, prison, yeah. you know, they, they were initially created, um, hence the, the name penitentiary uh, for penitents. Um, and, you know, at one point in time, it was at least, a possibility that you might uh, be rehabilitated somewhat, but a great example of when it was became really obvious that that was no longer the case was right. when um, they made access to uh, to Pell grants um, no longer accessible to people in prison, so you can't oh, even you, know, you can't even get an education, and um, you know, and and in so many ways prisons. Being due to their intense violence, um, the way that um, you are essentially forced into being in a gang, um, the violent ways you are treated, the the manner of living you are um, required to experience with the control and surveillance, mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't come out less likely to no, commit a you crime. You come out more likely. That's yeah. Right. So I don't so know how that's not obvious to folks. I mean, if you if you weren't a criminal going into that system, you're certainly going to come out one. There's that's I think it would be hard not to. Yeah, and I think that um, I think that for most these people who are big fans of mass incarceration, I think they do know. You know, I think um, what 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 is crazy to me, 
actually, is that they would ever let anyone out at all. Because if they care about the safety of those on the outside, knowing that they're not creating safer people inside, right. you'd think that it would be even harder to get out. But um, listen, it's not easy to get out. There are tons of people, innocent and who yeah. may have committed a crime um, but don't belong in prison, who are there for decades and die in prison and everything else. But you're right, when th those who do come out who are in no way prepared for life on the outside, um, recidivism rates are so high that you're, you're certainly more likely to go back than not. Um, and that, not surprisingly, is um, certainly worse if you're uh, a person of color and if you're poor. Um, you know, you are on parole under a different form of carceral punishment. The requirements like probation, like ankle monitors, um, yeah. like at like house arrest, these are all just different ways of controlling, surveilling, and inflicting violence on, on people who typically were victims before ever being so-called perpetrators and who were in dire circumstances that led to That's their right. committing a crime in the first place. That's right. Um, so without the jobs programs, without the education, um, without the... Uh, uh, mental health and substance abuse treatment on the outside, they are absolutely not likely to succeed. Many of them forever as felons will not have the right to vote. They, you know, That's they're, the other they're, thing, a right? lot of these people, they're essentially born um, to neighborhoods with bars. Um, they go to schools with metal detectors, violent police officers, and um, insane um uh, disciplinary um, measures that all also target black and brown people. So there's they you know they go right from school through the pipeline to prison, um, and then when they get out, it's you know they're they're still under a form of of state control, and typically they go back or you know many many become homeless. Um, it. It's incredibly unfair. Um, well, you know, we and, have to, I don't think we can even consider correcting the problems without looking at the social and economic structures that surround the school to prison pipeline. I, I, I would say even now we're seeing an uptick, uh, an uptick in crime, at least we are in Los Angeles. And most of it's related to the fact that people don't have money to buy food are, you know, having rent coming due soon where they can't pay it because they haven't been working for nine months. And it's just shocking to me that the government doesn't see the intelligence to respond to that problem. And instead we're going to end up arresting people because they just want to like feed their families and, and, you know, have money coming in. I mean, the, 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 the problems with the capitalist system are definitely contributing factors to this. And I think yeah. we need to discuss those if we want to really like, fix what's what's going on here you know what i'm saying yeah a hundred percent um you know it, it's it's pretty complicated i mean you know on the one hand um everything is reactive um, everything is know, reactive oh my gosh nothing yes. nothing is preventative um cops right, don't prevent right. crimes there are no um safety nets in place to prevent people from needing to commit crimes, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then there's the other aspect of this, the profit motive where, um, you know, the same companies that, um, that fund uh, 
uh, police foundations are the ones that that donate to the politicians who create yeah, the a lot laws. of corporate donations go into police foundations i don't know that folks realize that yes yes corporate corporations fund police yeah. uh foundations um and they also are the same ones who are paying eight cents an hour for people who are incarcerated right. to make their products um yeah. those who are not using slave labor are profiting um not just off private prisons, but in state and federal prisons, off the food that is sold at commissary, the clothes right. that is worn, um, the food that is served, um, you know, the bedding, every yeah. last thing. Um, there's corporate connections and they're tied into the politicians who are the ones who are, you know, who are in power to change these things, um, but don't because it doesn't serve their interests. Um, so yeah, without a doubt, I mean, you know, we spend all of our budgets on police, on prisons, on war, and nothing on feeding people, housing people. We live in a country where, um, you know, there are 30 vacant units for every houseless person. Um, you know, we are all, you know, suffering from the, the results of COVID and can't get stimulus checks. Um, in Chicago, where they got like um, 400 million or something for uh, from federal funding to, to address COVID, 380 million of that went to the police, not to social services, right. not to disability, like to the police yeah, to, to do what to, to stop um, people from shopping. Like, I'm not even sure how that's related to COVID at all, but that's what happens with funds that are discretionary. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they in end Portland, up in the, yeah, they end up in the police budget. I mean, yeah. in Portland, you saw, um, that a bunch of stores were throwing out food because of the weather that right. was not going to make it because they'd lost power. Yeah. And instead of, um, you know, instead of someone at the business being organized and like, giving it to mutual aid groups or homeless shelters. Okay, fine. You know, it's hard to blame, you know, a small business, if, you know, even a larger business, they threw it out, you know, restaurants and, and supermarkets throw out stuff every day. What makes the story so insane is that people who are starving went to steal food, steal food yeah. out of a garbage can. Things and that other protect, people consider yeah. trash. And what they did was the cops sent 12 police officers to, to one the trash. I saw garbage that. can to prevent yeah. people from eating. You know, it's one thing. I understand that the restaurants and the grocery stores are afraid to give the food away because they don't want liability attached to it. If somebody gets sick, they could get sued. That's the reasoning behind that. It's I, We can get into the reason as to why that's problematic. And it, it's sad that that's where we are at in our society. Again, capitalism. But to to send cops to guard the trash is just next level ridiculous. They should have yep. turned a blind eye to that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and you know, and these are the you know in Portland, these are the same cops who protect the Proud Boys, um, yeah. but beat the crap out of uh, Black Lives Matter protesters. Right. You know, Proud right. Boys and and Patriot Prayer show up with guns knives and hammers yeah. and uh black lives matter protesters show up with signs yeah i know yeah it's true you know it's 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 pretty staggering um all of this stuff but you know it's it's the solution is not to obviously to throw up your hands but 
um, you know, and, and not to also, um, you know, rest on your laurels on, you know, right, so right. either end of the spectrum, you know, when we saw a 20% defunding of the Seattle PD, we can point to the fact that the protests there were strategic, that yeah. um, they had concrete demands that they brought to the city council and it resulted in a success. So we celebrate that success. We learn from it. You know, what could we have done differently? You know, why was it partially successful? And then we try to implement this everywhere because again, um, efforts to defund and abolish are not meant to just get rid of cops because because, you know, FTP and ACAB. It's because we want to actually <laughs> protect people. We want to house and feed people. We want people to have access yeah, exactly. to treatment. And so without putting, so when we have all this money that we're spending on cops, all of a sudden free, you know, we can, we can mandate that that money go to specific places targeting the most heavily impacted communities. And we can change all of this. We can fix everything. Not going to happen overnight, but no, there's, but... You know, it ha we have to start. We have to start. I mean, we, we didn't used to be this way. We've been progressing this way for 30, 40 years now. So, I mean, we could always make the case that um, as far as budgets I'm talking about, let me clarify what I'm talking about here. We can we can always make the case that the racist cops have always been part and parcel to the problem. They've never not existed. The entire departments were built off of um, being slave catchers. This, this is mm -hmm. just a fact of the matter. But... <clears throat> But what makes it more egregious is the fact that we've just handed these guys more and more money to buy military-grade weapons and, you know, what have you. It's just made it so much worse. And I would say the, the big game-changer now was the fact that we do have camera phones, you know, back in the 90s. I remember when Rodney King, you know, when that first came, <clears throat> first came out, it was so appalling because nobody had really seen anything like that. And... Now that we see it constantly because everybody has a camera phone, I think it's really awakened the movement and made it really clear that something needs to be done. And I think um, hopefully we're going to see some substantial changes coming. I know that the pressure coming into into Garcetti's office has been very strong. Oh, yeah. Those are my people, man. Yeah. You know, I love <laughs> which all is those good. Guys. I mean, there's no yeah. there's no reason that the LAPD should have 54 percent of the city budget. That's an, that is absolutely outrageous. 100 percent and yeah. um you know you're you're absolutely right um you know we we're in um a new a new world where um we have a lot more power just through technology yeah um, and i'm glad remarkable. that you mentioned um our phones um our cameras because yeah. you know one of the things again that was touted as this you know life you know earth shattering, you know, world changing um, reform advancement was body cams. And right, right, on the right. one hand, you on the one hand, you see that they shut them off. Yeah, they so, shut them off all the time. Right. Let's assume that the, it's impossible for them to shut it off. This again, assumes that cops are the answer to responding to urgent need calls, and also increases the surveillance state. So it actually makes things worse where we are less and less safe to not be surveilled and um, racially profiled and have evidence collected against us. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, we having the choice with our own property to film people whose salaries we pay 
I think is a wonderful thing. And can we and, talk about that for a second? The outrageous salaries that we pay. Um, I've been going through the data recently for the uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. There was an under sheriff that was paid seven hundred thousand dollars in twenty nineteen. Oh my God! Seven hundred thousand dollars. That was her salary for the year. And you know, I mean, that is that's 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 mind blowing. It's mind blowing, and, right? It's mind blowing. Beyond that, I'm still I'm still not recovered. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not going to be for a while. <laughs> Beyond that, we don't just pay their salaries. Every time they kill or beat somebody, we pay we the lawsuit. Pay. That's right. Yes, the taxpayers. We are the ones paying for the lawsuits. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that's as, that's part of the ten demands is that anytime a police officer is, um, you know, is sued or a department is sued. That money should be should come out of, um, you know, their retirement, their pension, That's right. their, you know, pro, you know, personal liability insurance. It's absurd that I we agree. have to, on top of their exorbitant salaries, pay so they can lie in court and save their asses. Yeah, it, you know, it does make them less responsible for their actions. I think that that's a really good demand, actually. Make them liable for their actions. They're not liable now. I mean, I think a lot of the really egregious behavior we've seen at the protests stems from that, right? If they throw, you know, tw if the LA Sheriff's Department throws 20 tear gas can canisters into a crowd willy-nilly and somebody loses an eye, they don't worry about that happening because they know they're not going to be liable for it. So they right. do it anyway. I think that they would think twice about how they behaved if that was, you know, part of the part of the deal. Right now they get away with whatever they get away with. And they're certainly right. not being disciplined for it. Right. And you I know, mean it's and insane that this is where we're at. Yeah. And and that's like one of those things that is on the road to abolition. It's not a reform that would strengthen the power of the police. It would it would it would change the right. dynamic. It would make them less dangerous and we, the people, less responsible for their funding right. until they don't exist anymore. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, is could be considered incremental, but is on the path. It's the it's a it's a positive step in the right direction. So I have to wonder, awkward, do Americans not look at examples of what happens in other countries with their police departments, with law enforcement? bail, social, socioeconomic standards that surround crime. Do they not look at other examples and think, what are they doing better than we are? Because they have lower crime rates and they're not paying out lawsuits for, you know, cops just willy-nilly killing people or, or maiming them. I mean, yeah. at some point, there seems to be some sort of disconnect between what America does, what America thinks, Americans think, Americans think is appropriate and the price on that with I mean, why are we looking abroad for examples of better policing styles in every way? I mean, policing and prison, too. Um, yeah. There's a disconnect. And I mean, we um, have more people in prison than China does. Yeah. I mean, we're five percent of the world's population and a quarter of the incarcerated population. I mean, per capita, it's outrageous. Yeah. And, you know, I think. The, what it really boils down to is this was never about safety in the first place. Right. When when the when mass incarceration hit its peak, when prison new prison construction hit its peak, crime, violent crime was at a low, but the number of news stories in mainstream media about violent crime was at a high. So you look at those three things all combined and you realize that 
What this is really all about is using the media to perpetuate a fallacy that enables more prison construction and more people locked up. It is not to keep those on the outside safe. It's to get rid of the people that we don't that we consider second class citizens. And that's why all of the reforms that we come up with are just meant to like assuage people. It you know it um right. it basically is like a more gentler form of genocide. You know, it's like you 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 basically like or you know okay it, it sounds scary to put them in prison so how about we turn their home into a prison instead so like i don't think right. that any effort is made to see i mean there's also the fact that america as a as a national institution or whatever you want to call it is arrogant we we believe we're the best country in the world the yeah most american exceptionalism is is a thing right right and so like we're not going to look at, oh my, we're going to look at Scandinavia. Yes, those we should look at Sweden. Little, those, <laughs> those tiny little countries, like they can't tell us anything. So no, oh, they no can. One, no one they do in, things so much better than us in so many areas. Absolutely. So people like me, you know, people who want to actually fix things for the betterment of all of us, yeah. look at look at other countries for examples. But the people who are making the laws and who benefit from what is happening today certainly don't care what another country they deem less than us is doing because they're very happy with what's happening right now. They're not worried about their kids going to prison. You know, just look at the the discrepancy in a, in a, uh, a conviction for coke, powdered cocaine versus crack cocaine. Oh, my God. Yes, it's crazy. You know, clearly the, the police is there to protect the property of wealthy people nine times out of 10, in my experience. Right. When you, like, for example, in Los Angeles, when you go to a protest in certain neighborhoods, all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. It's generally because that protest is butted up against a wealthy neighborhood, right? Nobody comes to East LA and wrecks havoc. Exactly. So, you know, it, yep. it is what it is. I think it does uh, need to be reformed. Um, so what would be your parting advice uh, to any activists, young activists that are working in this area? Well, you know, I, I, I think no if pressure. You're, <laughs> I think if you're um, a white person, it's to listen to people of color. If you're a man to listen to women, if you're straight to listen to LGBTQ, if you know, if you're um you know, you don't have disabilities to listen to those who do. Um, you know, that's my number one advice. Um, listen less, listen more than you, than you talk. Um, you know, and, you know, I, I think, you know, and judge and, and, you know, don't, you know, try not to judge people based off of like, you know, minor disagreements. Like we, you know, people, you know, activists should not be engaged in cancel culture at all. Um, you know, we, in order to build a massive movement, we need to align with people that we don't necessarily agree with 100% on every last thing. That was, you know, that was the power of the Rainbow Coalition. You know, it was, yeah. it was groups that had historically not um, worked together, working together because they identified a common enemy and a common goal. Um, So all of these things would be my advice. And if you believe that you um, have take issue with police brutality and mass incarceration and the criminalization of 
certain communities, um, I strongly suggest in, you know, investing the time in researching abolition, in reading um, Angela Davis, um, Mary M. Kaba, and, you know, the black women who've been doing this for longer than me, who've written incredible books. There's also toolkits from groups like Critical Resistance. Um, and, you know, these are the, these, this is where you'll get your grounding so that you can um, explain to people when you get the same questions over and over again about what abolition truly means and how it can be, how it's not so far-fetched right. and how what we have now was created by people. So why can't we undo it and create something else? Something better, exactly. Awkward, yeah. if folks want to follow your work, where should they be doing that out? Uh, YouTube, Twitter, what are, what are your um, social yeah. medias? Um, so 10 Demands, uh, the organization is uh, T-E-N Demands on Twitter. Um, and the website is 10forjustice.com, T-E-N-F-O-R justice.com. Um, I am Awkward Rap on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all those, and, and YouTube for that matter. Um, it's A-W-K-W-O-R-D-R-A-P. Um, in addition to uh, the music, uh, my most recent song is called Ten Demands. It's about our nation today and how abolition can, can help fix that. Yeah. Um, that's on YouTube. Um, in addition to the music, I also have my own show, um, certainly not as good as this one, oh. um, but I, I interview, it's good. I no, interview it's good. people like myself um, yeah. and people much, much more important than myself. So um, if you are not totally bored by hearing me talk, in those cases I do, I ask most of the questions and let smarter people do more of the talking. Um, that's also <laughs> my YouTube. No, you've been a great guest, Awkward. I um, appreciate you coming on. I um, Your rap music's great stuff. I think we first met on Twitter, but uh, no, you're doing some good work out there and you're smarter than you're letting yourself on to be right now. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for coming on, man. All right, I appreciate you.